What happens when a radio broadcaster gets let go from his sports talk job? Well, he tries to figure out what he wants to do next for a career. And in the meantime, joins the 4 million other podcasts on the internet and the John Cast is born. Join me each week as I talk to guests I find interesting or entertaining from the world of sports, play-by-play broadcasting, or whatever else sounds fascinating to me at the moment. The John Cast is what I'm doing until I figure out what I'm doing. Subscribe, download, and I hope you learn something along the way. Scott, nice to meet you. What are you drinking today? Good to meet you, John. Uh, I have drunk a good amount of water, probably two and a half liters of water. That's two and I, a half liters already. Well, that's very healthy so of about, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good way to start the day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome into the podcast. By the way, a quick announcement: you can support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. And enough people do it. Maybe I'll use a portion of that money each month to leave a nice tip at a coffee shop or do something cool like that. And you can find that link on the podcast description um, at Apple or at Spotify. But welcome in my guest. He is Scott Dickers. Now, this is straight from Wikipedia. Scott, an American comedy writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. He was a founding editor of The Onion. Now, before we start, Scott, I would like to say one thing real quick that this is a podcast. I get it. But in my opinion, not everybody needs a podcast, okay? Not everyone needs a podcast nowadays. There's two. I agree. There's two. Yeah. I mean, there are just too many podcasts, like the podcast guy who gets fired from his job. Right. And, you know, he's just sitting around in his boxers. He's messy, probably hasn't showered. um, And everyone has a podcast. My eight year old could have a podcast. My 70 year old mom could have a podcast. By the way, once again, nice to meet you. I am John. I just got fired from my job. And welcome to the John cast, Scott. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I, I agree that there are a lot of unnecessary podcasts, but I say make podcast. I say, if you can find an audience for your podcast, there's not too many. And some people just like to listen to other people talk, you know? And so if they like your voice and they want to hear what you have to say, then God bless everyone involved. I have no problem with that. By the way, how to write funny.com is your website. And that was my first attempt, by the way. I don't know if you caught that. That was my first attempt at following the cheat sheet to write a joke. I'm not a funny person. Well, I don't know. I Sometimes I'm funny, but I'm not comedy funny. And so that was my first attempt. I used the comedy cheat sheet at howtowritefunny.com. So how did I do my first time ever trying to relate, that, trying to do a little bit of a stand up there? I thought you did well. It's a sort of thing that takes practice. It takes time. And if that's your very first attempt, pretty good. Pretty okay. good. That is my very first attempt. But yeah, I, but, I, and, I, really, and I, want, I want to take you back for just one second and correct you. I, when you say like, I'm not a funny person or I don't think I'm funny. A lot of people think that they think they're just not funny. They don't have a sense of humor. And there is a new school of thought in the sciences at present that debunks that idea that people aren't born with certain talents. People will say, oh, I can't sing. I'm tone deaf. And then a professional singing teacher will spend 10 minutes with them and have them singing perfectly on key. It's almost like, how how could you take a bird and say, oh, you can't sing? You know, every bird can sing. Every human can sing. Every human can be funny. It's just a matter of what you focus your time and attention on. And if you like that idea, you can work on it. You can practice it. That's how everyone who is funny, who maybe even who makes a living professionally being funny, that's how they got started. They weren't funny at first, you know, they just 
practiced and tried it a few times and got better at it and developed what other people perceived as a talent for it. When the conventional wisdom now, and I believe this, that there is no such thing as talent. It's what are you spending your time on? What are you dedicating yourself to? What are you being persistent about? What are you spending the 10,000 hours on? That's what you're going to have uh, a talent in. And that's also with that free ebook at howtowritefunny.com, jumpstart your comedy career right now. You talk about it takes, it, you can't, you don't just do, you know, one of these uh, every day or every week or whatever. You have to do right. 10 funny ideas just to start. Like if you just want to start and see what you can do, 10 funny ideas a day. And eventually most of them are going to suck or not suck, but not Absolutely. be funny. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, another good analogy is how we all learn to walk. You know, no baby gets up and starts walking. Every baby has to try to walk and fall and try to walk again and fall and try to walk again and fall. That's how you learn anything. So some people have a problem with comedy because they feel like if they fall too many times, it means they're not funny. So those basically are babies who are refusing to walk because they think they can't walk. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Right. But I think it's different too, because if you're a baby and you fall down, everybody's like, oh, good job. Go do it again. But if you're not funny a couple of times, people just look at you and like, this yeah, guy's you have funny. to have an internal voice saying you can do this. And that's who succeeds is the, is the people who are insane enough to keep telling themselves, oh no, you're funny. Keep doing it. <laughs> keep doing it. You know, which is some sort of psychosis, but it works. Yeah. Were you always, when, when did you think you cross that threshold where you're like, okay, I, I think I'm funny right now. How did, how did you become funny? I think I finally crossed that threshold where I really thought I was funny about 10 years into my professional comedy career. Yeah. Before that, I really, there were times obviously when I thought it was confident enough to produce work or be funny in high school or whatever, but you know, you're always battling that internal voice that gnaws at you that says you're no good, you're not funny or whatever. But then I got to a certain point with just the craft of it where I was like, okay, I know how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Does sometimes happen where somebody gives you a, a chuckle? I bet you that's for someone who wants to be a, you know, into comedy, whether that's writing or comedian, stand up, whatever. I bet you that chuckle feels like, Ooh, I want to get that chuckle again. I want to get that laugh again. Is that part of what kind of drives? Yeah. It's totally the, the greatest drug you know, for somebody who's interested in this field. And I got it really early, you know, I would draw little pictures or write little stories for my grandma, and she thought they were really funny. And so that to me, that was like a, a taste of crack, you know, it's like, oh, somebody, somebody appreciates what I have to offer. So I just wanted to do more. And a lot of people don't get that until they're an adult, and they try stand up comedy. And they get a laugh from an audience and they, they get bit by the bug. Then I just got it really early. Yeah. How old were you when you were drawing these cartoons? Four, four years old. Yeah. A lot of poop jokes or what was, was going on in the four-year-old mind? You know, I actually was pretty sophisticated. I still have some of those books. Uh, there was a lot of wordplay and a lot of meta humor. So I, you know, I, um, cause I was a, a student of humor. I liked Dr. Seuss and I liked Sesame Street and, and I really appreciated some of that humor that I was exposed to. And I just wanted to do something like that. Yeah. And now you're trying to help people become funny at howtowritefunny.com. What, what yes. made you want to 
to make that and kind of give that cheat sheet that I was talking about that people can go and download for themselves and, and try their first joke too. When I left the onion around about 2014 or so, one thing that I was doing at that time in cooperation with the onion was teaching comedy at the second city training center in Chicago. And it was like an onion branded program. And a lot of people would go through my classes and they would come out and get jobs at the onion. It was kind of like this training ground. And it was based on this book that I had written, how to write funny. And before that at the onion, my job as the editor in chief was always to train the new writers. We would never hire experienced comedy writers. We would always hire totally green people who had no experience in comedy at least no professional experience or hardly any because we wanted a blank slate, you know, that we could sort of teach how to do it our way or whatever. And that was always the most rewarding part of my job was teaching other people how to do it and shepherding people and then seeing them go off and be successful. If they would leave the onion, they'd get hired on TV shows or whatever, write movies. And that was just incredibly satisfying. So when I finally left the onion, for the last time I left three or four times before that, but always came back. I I wanted to focus on that because, you know, you get old and it's like, okay, I want to, I want to, I want to give now. I've been, I've been in the trenches creating comedy for so many years, like decades at that point, let me just whittle it down to the, the most joyous parts of that work. And I still do enjoy doing comedy. I just, uh, I split it now. I I write an occasional novel and I'll do an occasional comedy book and I'll do some other stuff. But I love having a lot of my time devoted to just helping other people be funny. It's very rewarding. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I want to talk about a couple of those books here in in just a little bit, but The Onion, uh, the headlines to me, obviously the headlines are what is what gets everybody on the onion. I mean, one of the more jokes, Yeah, those are the jokes. And then the stories uh, in there are equally as hilarious. I mean, thank you. When you were, um, you know, one of the editors, founding editors of the onion, how difficult, how many people were writing headlines at that time? Or were the headlines, the main attraction always for the onion? Not always, you know, in the beginning, we were just kind of experimenting and figuring out what it was going to be. But it was always a newspaper. It started as a newspaper in 1988, and it didn't become a website until 1996. But as a newspaper, that was our format. You know, it was printed on newsprint because that was the cheapest way to print it. It had to be a newspaper parody. That was kind of, you know, the the form that followed the or the function that followed the form. And so we were doing headlines, but the headlines were really sort of meta newspaper parody headlines didn't really get into the headline as joke until a few years in. And it was not a lot of writers, you know, in the beginning, it was me and a handful of other people, the owners, the two guys who started it, who later sold it to me, like in year two. But over the succeeding years, people would just sort of drift in the office, you know, and want to help. And I would try them all and we'd see, you know, who kind of stuck around and who did good work. and. Pretty soon we had a pretty tightly knit group of people and it was very similar to how like a rock group forms, you know, it was just very organic and natural and the people kind of fit together. And then their voice, there was kind of a core group of, I would say about eight people whose collective voice really became what the onion was. And 
kind of still is because that was sort of cemented in the late 90s, early 2000s when The Onion became a household name pretty much. And after that point, then it was sold and traded hands a couple of times. The new owners are terrified to do anything different, you know, so it'll, it stopped evolving at that point. And, but they're smart about it because they create new things like they created ClickHole and other products like Starwipe and some of the videos that we did over the years to expand and try different types of comedy and, and different voices. But that's, that's the long answer to your question about the, the number of writers. When did you know that this was going to be what it is today? Or maybe you never knew that it was going to become as popular as it did. Was there a point where like, I, wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't know we were going to become this big. I mean, I, I had hoped, but yeah. I don't think my hopes were as big as, as it really turned out to be. So I, I hoped that one day we would be mentioned in the same breath as the Harvard Lampoon. You know, that was kind of my highest aspiration. And when The Onion started, there was a humor magazine called Spy Magazine that was the best humor publication in America. And it still stands up. It's all, all the issues are online for free. And it's just a great, funny magazine. And I mean, I never could have imagined that The Onion would eclipse Spy Magazine. And it has clearly, like more people know about The Onion than remember Spy Magazine. It had kind of a short life. So, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to pinpoint a particular time, but probably, I think it was 98, 99, we got a fan letter from Stephen Hawking. Oh, wow. We had written an article about him. The headline was, Stephen Hawking builds robotic exoskeleton. So he was going to be like a transformer with this giant metal body that could do anything and whatever. And he wrote us a fan letter and he said, if I can remember it exactly, it was, uh, it's all true. You may also not realize I am a time Lord from Andromeda. (laughs) So it was, you know, for him, like having to painstakingly move his head to type every character of that letter. I was very honored and impressed that he spent the time (laughs) to write us that letter. And that's when I thought, Oh, maybe we've got something. Wow. If yeah. Stephen Hawking is writing us fan letters. Do you still have that? I probably do. It's buried yeah. deep in a computer somewhere. Yeah. Oh, you got it was an email. It was, you know, it was an email. So oh. there's a digital copy for sure. Yeah. NFT on the horizon there of the That's email. not a bad idea. I'll have to dig that up and sell it for 20 grand. Yeah, that they would sell for 20 grand. I guarantee you that. <laughs> did you did you come up with the name The Onion? No, I was part of the, as I mentioned, these two guys who started yeah. it, Tim Keck and Chris Johnson, they initially started with the name The Rag. Okay. And that was kind of the working title for the first month or two. And then because we had to print on newsprint, this name, The Onion, kept getting bounced around because it just felt like a good name for a newspaper because it's like you peel back the layers to get at mm-hmm. the facts, you know. But it also felt like, eh, there's not something, there's something not quite right about that newspaper, you know. Right, seem right. as august as the beacon or the herald or something like that and so yeah we settled on uh, we settled on the onion and it fit it fit pretty good yeah are you surprised at how many people will take onion articles and retweet post on facebook and not know 
that what they are retweeting is satire, is comedy. Yes. And I shouldn't be because most of my life I have known that people don't think people are always on autopilot and they don't really have very good critical thinking skills. Humans in general, you know, we're just pretty stupid. But I am continually surprised at just how stupid we are. And I continually get surprised every year. I feel like people are more stupid. So and now you've got people who are literally out there protesting for the right to die uh, from COVID. They've got signs saying, let me die, you know, don't protect me. I mean, it's just unbelievable how stupid people are. It's unbelievable. So the fact that they could believe an onion story, mm. you know, I, it doesn't surprise me anymore. But at first it did. Is that what kind of led you? Because uh, I have not read the books, but Our Dumb World and Our Dumb Century, is that kind of... Yeah, uh, intertwined yeah, it was with this that. whole idea that we were smarter than you at the onion and we know better and you should just do what we say. And that's a parody of the media in general, because that's the attitude that I would always get from the mainstream media, that they know everything and you're dumb. And so we took on that attitude kind of ironically, but also kind of factually. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's sort of where that all came from. The onion slogan used to be, you are dumb. <laughs> And then it changed into America's finest news source, <laughs> which is a, nice, a, little, a little more respectable slogan, right? Uh, more respectable for such a fine publication as yes, as the onion. So where do you stand on the media in 2020, 2021? Oh, I think it, we're in a sad, sad state of affairs with the media. I do like independent media and I appreciate the internet. I just wish people had better skill for determining whether things are true. I wish people did their research and didn't just believe everything they read. I mean, that's the problem with the onion. They see it in print and they just believe it. And so, you know, you've got belief in astrology is at an all time high and, you know, astrology is just complete made up bunk. doesn't have anything to do with anything real. And, you know, you've got people who believe in the most insane conspiracy theories. So I blame not only the media, but our education system, I think it's failed this country spectacularly. But the real problem with the media is not just misinforming people with wrong or bad information or failing to come out and sort of help people understand what's true and what's not true. It's the fact that it's, it's all propaganda and it's all propaganda by billion dollar corporations. So they are invested in us being stupid and uneducated and just show up to work on time and, and not demand too much pay. So every story in the media is there to further that agenda. And there's no question about it. And, you and that's go- one of the, this is sort of the onion secret to being like an equal opportunity offender. You know, we, we have a reputation or always have at the onion of being able to make fun of, you know, both sides, so-called of every argument or whatever. But any really good satirist knows that the only two sides in any society are the rich and the poor. And I'm talking about the super rich, the 1%. Because when you make jokes at the expense of the 1% and you elevate the 99%, people are going to love you. And that's what they want. And there are plenty of people on the political left and right who are in the 1% 
and most of America is in the 99%. So you can come off as an equal opportunity offender when really you're just comforting the afflicted of the 99% and afflicting the comfortable of the 1%. It's a, the whole left-right dichotomy is such a shell game that is perpetuated by the media, in my opinion, to keep us from noticing that the rich control our lives and keep us down. <laughs> right. No, that's that, so we can't fix this. We can't can we? fix it. They have way too much power. Yeah. Yeah. They own the conversation. And it was really evident to me when uh, Bernie Sanders won the first three Democratic primaries. Mm -hmm. And then Obama and all his rich donors and all the other candidates got together and said, we can't have this. This guy's going to tax us. And they basically said, you know what? Biden's our best shot. This pathetic, senile old man who barely made a showing in any of these three primaries, he's our guy because he's not going to upset the apple cart. And all the media went along with it. All the, you know, the media only had Bernie Sanders on begrudgingly because mm -hmm. he was a popular candidate. But, you know, you saw how they treated him. I mean, there was just so much implicit bias. And mm -hmm. They'll, they'll claim, you know, on the opposite end of the political spectrum, they'll claim that they give Trump a lot of heat or whatever, but they give him so much attention and like, he's not going to cut taxes on the rich. So he's, he's an okay candidate, even though he's crazy, they'll put him out there and they'll show all his speeches on mainstream media and they'll say he's crazy, but they're not going to, they're not going to ignore him like they do somebody like Bernie Sanders, Yeah, you know? Or even like AOC, who is the most popular member of Congress, but has has she ever been on Meet the Press? I think maybe she was on once, you know, but they just don't want to give airtime to people who are going to point out the, the truth that, look, every other politician is just in the pockets of corporations. And that's how this country is run. They do the bidding of the corporations. They don't do the bidding of the people. And, and obviously also the, the media spends a ton of time and effort and the big corporations do as well to vilify people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. So you see a lot of these really uninformed, you know, low information voters thinking that they're the bad guy, you know? Yeah. So that's how I see it. Yeah. It was really frustrating for me because when you talk about Bernie Sanders, I wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders and I wanted to vote for and or Andrew Yang. And it wasn't, I had no choice. Like, I, I can't do By that. By the time because, they got to you, you they weren't on the ballot? Yeah. I mean, they, they already had their candidate that they wanted. And it's it's really frustrating when, I, when there are people, I think, like me, uh, perhaps like you, that just want some change. But you, you know, you're not, that's not going to, it's not going to happen. It's not going to win because- everything's kind of already been not predetermined, but I guess maybe predetermined. They've already picked out who they want, even though you don't want them. It's the next best option. If you want what is kind of right for your, you know, your own beliefs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same thing happened to me by the time they got to my state, uh, there weren't really any options. So I wrote in Bernie Sanders. I, I figured, fuck it. <laughs> Just, just go ahead. So yeah. maybe can the internet, can the internet, so you talk about like AOC not being on meet the press or maybe one time, can the internet save us from this in a way? Because it, you know, you, the, the, 
the 1% can't control the message all the time? Can the internet somehow save us with some sort of grassroots savior? 1% is trying their hardest to rein in the conversation online. Yeah. And they're doing a great job. They're doing a great job. And so I have very little faith that the voice of the people is somehow going to rise up and conquer the rich and powerful. The inexorable tide of history is that the rich and powerful will do anything they can to maintain and grow their wealth and their power. And that's the the tide we're fighting against, and it's never going to stop. So yes, the internet is a new, exciting thing, and it gives uh, a, a kind of democracy to the media, and there's no more barrier to entry. Anybody can go on and, and talk. But big billion-dollar corporations now own a lot of those avenues of expression like YouTube and Facebook and everything else. So, you know, you've seen the crackdowns that have happened recently. They're, they, you know, when I go on YouTube and I, I'm watching random videos, I get CNBC and MSNBC and Fox News like served up to me when I'm, when I'm watching whatever I want to watch, I'm like, why are you showing me that? Like, I, I never asked to see that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these independent uh, media voices are being stifled unless they support the, the goals of the 1%, you right. know? So unfortunately, what that means is a lot of the left-wing voices are silenced because nobody's funding the left-wing. Nobody's funding a left-wing voice who's saying, hey, people should get paid more and companies should pay more taxes. But the right-wing independent media is getting funded by the Koch brothers and everything else because they're furthering the right message, the message of we shouldn't tax anybody, you know, and uh, the, our, our, the Republican politicians who are all completely in bed with corporations are right. You know, that, that message serves the 1%. What about conversations? So, you know, conversations online, I feel like um, those, that isn't the real world. You know I mean? There's so much fighting and clawing from all these, you know, you know, news organizations and everybody in the comment section, right? They all go after each other. Um, (laughs) I, I think like none of that is, is real. And we as a society just react to like this certain percentage of people that are willing to go online and be really loud. But yeah, I don't know how well, much of that is real. I, I hear what you're saying. I think propaganda is just far more powerful than we realize. And I think when people have a lot of money, they do control the conversation. They get inside people's heads. And so even offline, the conversations that people have are very much puppet mastered by the, the wealthy corporations that kind of control the conversation online. My one ray of hope is that you know, this generation Z coming up is very skeptical and they're very progressive and they don't believe the, the media and they don't trust politicians, especially on the right. And, you know, most of our politicians are on the right, regardless of what party they're in. So they see what's happening, you know, and you know, I, at some point in this country, there, there, it was possible to elect somebody like FDR, you know, who could really make some sweeping changes that really helped people. And Lyndon Johnson, too, to a lesser degree. 
But I, I do think those days are gone. And I wonder if it was the Kennedy assassination that did it. Because, you know, Obama ran as a progressive and we all thought he was going to be one of those people. And he turned out to be the same old corporate tool that we got uh, from from Ronald Reagan onward. You know, yeah. I was Just so doing... optimistic. I was so optimistic. We all were. That, yeah, we all that, were. Yeah. Yes, we can. You know, yes. <laughs> it was such a great message. <laughs> It was just so depressing. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. Okay. I got to ask you about a, a couple of different topics since we're kind of talking about uh, media and things like that. Where do you come down on cancel culture? What is cancel culture to you? I am of two minds about cancel culture. I think part of it and the way it began was a good thing. And that was men generally who turned out to be rapists and horrible people were being called out finally and canceled. And I think that's fine. Like, I don't mind a rapist being taken down. I think that's a fine and, and good thing. I don't like if, you know, when someone used a slur 10 years ago and then they don't get hired for a job today, I think you got to let people grow and you got to let people change because people do grow and change. And then part of me also just doesn't like it because I feel like it's a, it's an excuse for a lot of people to self-censor and it's, it's an excuse for people to claim that they're a victim because someone didn't like their work. And, you know, especially in the comedy field, somebody does comedy and people don't like it. The, the weakest among them will say, I'm being canceled. They're canceling me or whatever. And I, you know, just do your comedy and some people are going to like it. Some people aren't. That's the way it's always been. And there's nothing really that different about now than in the past. So that's generally how I feel about it. Um, obviously, you know, speaking of comedy, Dave Chappelle, his new Netflix special. I don't know how right. much you followed that, but there's a, a sure. lot of people, you know, calling for Chappelle. Netflix is kind of standing behind, uh, bes- uh, behind him and beside him, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. wh- where do you come down on, on the recent stuff with Dave Chappelle and his, and his, a transphobic, what some people call transphobic comedy on Netflix. Right. Well, I think what he said on there was ill-informed and I wouldn't have advised it had I been, you know, on his team. I just thought it was an ignorant opinion, Mm -hmm. but he's entitled to it. You know, let him have his ignorant opinion. Let him do his comedy. Some of his other jokes are good. Now, having said that, I am not a trans person, so I can't speak to the trauma of being a trans person who is constantly bullied and constantly marginalized and only recently, only in the last few years has felt even recognized and noticed and respected by the culture. So to have someone of very high status, like Dave Chappelle, who's very respected, come out and diss them, that's got to hurt, you know, that's got to hurt. So yeah, I wouldn't have advised it. I think it's stupid. I think Again, the, the trick to comedy is comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. When you start going after a minority group like that, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's the purpose of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I read somewhere that you called COVID the pan- pandemic of ignorance. Did I get that correct? <laughs> yeah. I think what I said, that's so funny that you would say that. I, I said that in a, in a class that I spoke to the other day. And I said, the real pandemic is a pandemic of ignorance. Okay. Okay. Because this country is, yes, you know, I don't know how many, three quarters of a million people have died now from COVID, but how many people have died because of ignorance? 
probably a lot more. And because people in America are ignorant, they don't believe in science, you know, they, they aren't informed voters. And the propaganda that feeds their brains is keeping them ignorant. And to me, that's the real pandemic. So that's one of the reasons I love the internet so much is because people can read and they can do research and they can check their facts and check their sources. And the younger generation that does rely on the internet to inform them about what's going on in the world are smarter and they're more skeptical and they, they are better critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. So that does give me some hope. I but, also you know, wonder you too. You always the, have to fight against the ignorance. Yeah. Uh, Gen Z, by the way, hopefully can, can save us all, like you were saying earlier, but um, it's an age thing too, right? With um, some of this ignorance, I mean, does it come, cause you just talked about research. So I was talking to, I've told the story before, but I was talking to a friend about COVID and we were talking about some, I think a Delta variant, I don't know. And we were trying to figure out some numbers and I said, okay, hold on. I'm going to go do the research. I'm going to go find out. And about 20 minutes in, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of different sources and sites and what, and then once you get that site, okay, now what am I missing with this source? And, and I thought, well, this is now, well, since I got let go from my job, this is like a new part-time job, but I'm not getting paid to, to do it. It's just a conversation with a friend, but at least I know how to navigate around this, right? I, I, because I'm, you know, I grew up with the internet, um, you know, somebody older who just gets logs onto Facebook and they know how to hit log in. I don't think they have the skill set to do some of the research that you're talking about. Yeah. And they don't have a science education, so they don't understand like when Fauci, for example, will come out and give you the best available science that that's all we can do with science is give you the best available information. So if you go to the CDC or Fauci or anywhere else, you're going to get the best available science. That science may change. And, but when it does, people get confused and they're like, I, I trusted science, but then science changed its mind. You know? <laughs> yes. So they're just ignorant. They don't understand how it works. And yes, old, it does seem like most of the ignorance is among the old. So thankfully, they're dying. Many of them are dying of COVID, <laughs> unfortunately, but they're dying off. They're getting old. And the younger people are smarter and they know how to do that internet research. And they understand the concept of science. They also seem to understand the concept of like, be good to each other, be polite, you know, don't, uh, um, don't be a bully. And it seems like the older generation hasn't figured that out either. That's one thing I never understood about masks is I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. It's, it's not to protect me. It's to protect you. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, look out for you because we all have people we love who are the most vulnerable age at 70 plus, like, why would you not want to protect the people you love? Because there are other 70 year olds. I may not love you, but somebody else loves you. So I don't, I never understood like that because people are like, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to die. Well, that's fine, but it's not about you. Yeah. I must admit, I, I experienced a really pleasurable schadenfreude when these uh, demagogues from right-wing radio or, you know, preachers who are in the QAnon cult uh, get COVID and die. That just fills me with such glee because they're just so stupid and they deserve to die for being so stupid. What they, what, who doesn't deserve to die are the people that they infect because they're not following the proper protocol. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Like if you're not going to do it for yourself, you know, to hell with you, do it for the other people in your life, do it for everyone else, do it for the community. We've lost that. We've completely lost that sense of 
showing up for each other. I mean, everyone, I, I don't, I don't know the death rate for 70 plus. Is it, is it, I think it's like 5% or something like that. I, I don't want to speak. I don't know mis- the numbers either. I know it's higher, obviously. Yeah. I don't want to, yeah, it's higher. Yeah. Let's say that. And I've always thought to myself, if that demo was 35 to 54, that had that kind of reaction and 70 plus was like everybody else, you'd be fine. And the younger would be fine. Oh, everybody'd be wearing masks then. You know what I mean? Like everybody would have taken this a lot serious, but I've always felt like for a big, you know, chunk of the population, well, it doesn't affect me. So I'm not going to worry about it. But if it, if that, if those numbers were flipped around, I, I think things would be a lot different. Yeah. I also blame Trump because I feel like if he had worn a mask in the beginning and told people, wear your mask, it's important. We wouldn't even be having this debate. You know, it was just him and his stupid cult followers who saw how he was behaving about COVID and being too cool to wear a mask. And he thought it made him look weak or whatever. That started this whole thing, you know, that he minimized COVID and took off his, uh, took off his mask. He only wore it for that one, it was one shot where he was standing outside the White House. We wore it for a second. They took it off, you know, just because he, he couldn't stand to look weak. I mean, what a, what a child. Yeah. What are we going to think of Trump? What do you think the world, let me, let me run that back. What do you think the U S will think of Trump in 10, 25, 50 years? Like how, how, how do you, do you ever think about that? Yeah. I think he'll be remembered as one of the worst presidents, if not the worst, and he'll be in competition with George W. Bush for being among the worst. And we're going to be embarrassed. And we're going to, I hope, work really hard to make sure that we don't make that same mistake again. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned George W. I, I always thought it was interesting that there seemed to be you know, 20 years after, you know, he's out of office or whatever, that people seem to like him a little bit more. You know what I mean? Like he's well, yeah, giving candy to Michelle Obama. To yeah. No, like, I, I didn't, I didn't like that. You know, let's no. not forget he's a war criminal who tortured people. Mm-hmm. He, you know, we, we hung Nazis at Nuremberg for that. <laughs> and he and Cheney were proud of it. And, you know, he invaded the wrong country by mistake. You know, millions of people were killed. It's just, it's horrific what he did. But, you know, Trump was just so horrible on the face of it. It was really easy to compare George W. Bush favorably to that. Mm -hmm. But having said all that, you know, I'm no fan of Biden either. I think he's a complete loser who doesn't want to do anything for anybody in office. He just wants to keep the chair warm and he's barely got his mind um, so we're just, we're, we're so horribly underserved by our leaders. It's, it's laughable where yeah. we're at right now. You know what yeah, I, I mean? Get... We had two senile men running for president. <laughs> well, what was that? I don't, can we find somebody a little younger and energetic? Couldn't we find anybody? Yeah. It's just unbelievable. But you know, people are never recognized in their time. You ask people now, would you vote for, uh, Martin Luther King? If he ran for president, he gets like 90% of Democrat and Republican votes. And, but at the time he was hated. He, he yeah. was a very marginalized figure. He was like a Bernie Sanders in his day. Mm. So that's how we are. Uh, it's again, that media propaganda really doesn't want someone like that to be elevated to power. So it's just not going to happen. Um, you know what? I never got speaking of propaganda and, and I, by the way, I haven't researched this. I didn't look into it. 
Um, I, I feel like I got to qualify everything. Um, but <laughs> when, when was it Biden got, did he get the booster or he got a shot? And yeah, there was he that, got the booster that, that fake like background. Did you see, you know what I'm talking about? There's like, I didn't see the background and didn't notice it. No. So I don't, I mean, I so saw a the picture. The, He's like in front of the press picture. and there's like a fake background where it yeah, looks I like, saw that picture. I don't remember the background. What was, what was it? Uh, but what, it was like, he was in his office or something, but it was just a fake wall that they put up on a stage or whatever. What I don't, I didn't understand why you would do something like that. That just creates more controversy and more fuel. Like, it, I, I don't know. I just, it seemed like a weird thing to do. Yeah. I never heard about that story. I, I assumed that he was in the office. I don't know why they would do that. Yeah. I'll send you the picture. It's, it's weird. It's really weird. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know we were going to talk about all this today. This is fun. I'm not, I'm not usually, listen, I'm a sports guy. I come from a sports background. I'm 17 years of sports radio talking about Aaron Rodgers from Wisconsin, talking about Aaron Rodgers, the Badgers, all this kind of stuff. I see. So I never, I never, you're talking to the guy who cares about sports less than anyone else on earth. (laughs) I literally could not care less about sports. So you don't have a favorite team or anything like that. I don't have a sporting bone in my body. It it even bothers me when I have to hear other people talking about sports. Okay. (laughs) I will quickly stop talking about, um, talking about sports. So I bear no ill will against them. I just don't want to hear about it. Okay. All right. That's fine. Well, there was a great onion headline recently but i don't know it's at sports um so back to comedy we can go back to comedy can't we, sure. we can, yeah i can... know i will say like before in the old days and by the way the sports editor at the onion now was a student in my class at second city okay and matt spinna is a great guy so in the old days when the onion would do sports humor the humor would always make fun of sports but then they got this whole sports section and then they started doing like in jokes about sports. And then I stopped liking it. I liked it when it made fun of the idea of sports. There was a lot of that in the old days. <laughs> um, so well, not even that old, like, you know, 2012 and before I would say. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's still, that's still fairly it's pretty recent. recent. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty recent. Um, back to the comedy. Uh, so is, is when, when was comedy like, uh, a lifelong goal for you. When, when did that occur? Was it back to the jokes with your grandma or when did yeah, you really that was say back, that was way back then at four. And I never thought I would ever do anything else besides. Really? So you um, never wanted to be like anything else other than just to be funny guy. No, I mean, there were different mediums that I would move into. I wanted to be a performer. I think when I was in, you know, middle school and then I wanted to, be a movie director when I got into high school, but it was all about comedy. Like I just wanted to, to create comedy. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your favorite comedy movie? Do you have a favorite movie? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I have to name a handful. I'd have to give you, uh, Anchorman because a great (laughs) comedy movie. Yeah. Uh, the blues brothers. Yeah. Uh, ghostbusters, you know, amazing classic spinal tap. Sure. And uh, the King of Comedy, Martin Scorsese. Great movie. Super funny. Okay. Yeah. Those are probably, and and Raising Arizona, Coen Brothers. Can't beat it. Sure. Anchorman. Yeah. What was it about Anchorman? I mean, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are really good and they're really funny. That movie was so pure. They wrote that movie before they got big and before they could get any movie they wanted made. And they couldn't get it made. So when they finally were at that place, they were like, we're making that old movie we wrote back when 
nobody would let us make movies. And it just has that sense of pure fun of just being yeah. stupid that I love. And I love David Koechner and I love Steve Carell in it. And it, they're all just wonderful. Christina Applegate is amazing in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a fantastic movie. It is. It is a fan. I love Lamp. And Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I guess oh, Ferris Bueller's Day. That's a classic. All classics. Classic. John Hughes, you know, he, any John Hughes movie, like tr- Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, despite like it hasn't aged well with the with the homophobia, but great movie. Yeah, so that's interesting because there are a lot of movies like that where you go back and you watch, you're like, that does not fly in 2021. <laughs> I, know. I know, I know. And, I, you know, in my whole life, I've watched that happen with movies. and at the onion, we always tried to circumvent that by making sure that, and again, that's where I come back to that comfort, the afflicted and afflict the comfortable policy. We always did that at the onion. So now you go back to that same era, you know, the, the late eighties and the onion ages really well. There's, there's no real like homophobic or transphobic or racist stuff coming out of the the onion at that time. Hmm. So that's a point of pride for me. Yeah. Well, um, or, I appreci- or sexist stuff. You know, we, we right. actually had a much higher percentage of female writers than most comedy organizations did in the beginning. Hmm. Well, I appreciate this conversation, Scott. I thought it was so much fun. I, I went out of my comfort zone with the joke at the top, and then I never talk politics <laughs> ever, ever. So it's really, I, I really um, appreciate your opinion and your, your view on a lot of these topics. Um, Sure. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoy talking about it as well. I figure, you know, it's your show. We can talk about whatever you want. So I just go where you take me. Yeah. And that's what this podcast is. It's just, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next. Cause I don't know if I can get back into radio, uh, the sports side of things. I, I do broadcast play by play for Wisconsin athletics for women's basketball and volleyball. So I, I, that's the part of my job I love. So I just wanted to talk to people and kind of just pick their brains and stuff. And when I saw that you were coming to Madison, I think this was last week, to speak, I'm like, Scott Dickers. Hmm. Okay. And I kind of looked you up. I'm like, this guy seems like he has a lot of different opinions on things. And I'd love to know more about the onion. So I, yeah. I, I'm really appreciative that you even, you know, responded back and, and agreed to do oh, it. Oh, sure. And, and you know, the funny thing is about like having a conversation like this, where I'm just spouting opinions, you know, all these opinions are, are in the onions stories going back 30 years, but all of the opinion in the onion comes subtextually. So it comes at you as a joke, but the subtextual opinion that you get is pretty much the opinion that I'm espousing here. We're just, we're not speaking in terms of jokes and we're not trying to be funny or anything. We're just having a conversation. So uh, it all comes out. And it's so interesting, isn't it? That sometimes opinions, especially politics and everything else can just seem a little heavy and overbearing when they don't come crunched up like medicine in the spoonful of jelly. That is comedy, you know? Absolutely. Well said. Well said, Scott. And I appreciate so uh, your time here today. And thank you for joining me here on the John Cast podcast. My pleasure, John.